It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions. Supply. Hello, everyone. My name is Takuyi. And I'm Gabby. And welcome back to the podcast, my hosts. Oh, my God. Okay, yeah. Hear, hear how I sound right now? Like, a lot of you are probably confused from last week uh, where we released that episode. And it was, it, it, it stated like it was Patreon exclusive, which it wasn't. Uh, well, it is a Patreon exclusive. Every yes. single week when we release a wide release episode onto Spotify for you guys, we also release an exclusive podcast episode on patreon that our patrons pick out for that specific week so they got two episodes yes and if you want to do that it only costs a dollar per month like that's that you can pay more to get other bonuses but the one for the this specific podcast is a dollar a month and you get four extra episodes at least i mean i guess sometimes in a month it'll be five episodes so it depends it but, really depends on the week exactly the gist of it though is the reason you all got that one is that last week i had a very severe upper respiratory infection which was not fun it was very bad i could not speak i'm sure for it those was of actually you... really terrifying because like you couldn't breathe in and i could like hear you struggling to be it was very scary yeah yeah i've always been prone to bronchitis and i've essentially worked myself into a state of exhaustion and sickness and that's just what happened so for all of those of you who are listening for all of those of you who have been supporting me here on patreon and everything thank you because at the rate that we're going, I'm hoping that within the next few weeks, I will be able to declare myself as going full-time. That's... And we'll be able to make podcast episodes without you being completely tired all the time and doing this at like 10 p.m. Yeah. after work. Yeah. Before 7 a.m. work the yeah. next day. It's but super funny, guys. Yawning a lot, right, Gabby? Well, okay. Every single time we record an episode, you literally have to cut because you have to yawn. So hopefully tonight isn't like that because it's Sunday night. So we kind of slept last night. I mean, yeah. But anyway, on to today's subject, because everyone, of course, last time was ex probably expecting the next episode of the Crusades, because we missed that, and we had to complete this whole thing. Honestly, with, my, with me being sick, I wanted to try to do something, but there's but it, no way that I could. There, yeah. there, not only because I would have difficulty speaking. Like, I could have fought my way through speaking when I started to recover. I would have been coughing, but I could have tried something, especially for a shorter podcast. This is not that. This is not that at all. This, this is the third crusade. This is the big one. Like, when I think among all the different crusades that we're set to cover or have covered, this is the big one because when people think of crusades, like Gabby, okay, when you're thinking of the crusades, what names come to mind? Frederick Barbarossa. It's the only name I know. Okay, you, you know what? Good one. Good one. Because for those of you listening here in the audience, I'm sure you're thinking of people like Richard the Lionheart, Saladin, and Frederick Barbarossa. Just like you, Gabby. Good. You got it right there. So some of these guys, they, like these are all great leaders of history. And all of them came from one specific conflict. Arguably, it was the most famous crusade of all of them. The 
Third Crusade. Now, in order to set the stage for this conflict, we have to go a little bit further back, and we have to recap the status of the Crusader states and the Muslim revival after the First Crusade and during the Second. So, if you remember from last time, things weren't exactly the best. Although the Crusader states initially benefited from the different political and religious disunity among the independent Muslim leaders of the region, it's only a matter of time before they began to group together under a single charismatic leader and made serious attempts to regain the losses of the First Crusade. In the second quarter of the 12th century, the Muslim expansion into the region went up a notch thanks to the arrival of one such guy, Imad ad-Din Zangi who was the Muslim independent ruler of Mosul and Aleppo. And so Edessa fell on Christmas Eve 1144 to Zangi after a four-week siege, and this was the original motivation for the launch of the Second Crusade. Which, Gabby, you, do you remember how that went? No. I'm going to be honest with you. I do not remember. Okay. I'm sorry. It's fine. It's technically it's Wait, been two actually, weeks. yeah, they overextended, and they couldn't keep control of all their lands, and... Yeah, it was a failure. The short of it is that it was a failure. They were defeated at Dorleans in Asia Minor on the 25th of October, 1147, and the failed siege of Damascus on July of 1148 led to a very swift abandonment, and the Crusader states were just completely on their own again. So Nur ad-Din continued to consolidate his empire, and then he took Antioch on the 29th of June, 1149, and then captured Raymond, the Count of Edessa, which brought an end to what was left of the county of Edessa in 1150. Even worse than this, though, for the Crusaders was that another charismatic Muslim leader would soon appear and once again change the political and religious map of the Middle East. Saladin. Which, my god, I, I'm saying this right now, and I know I've said this for a lot of the characters that we're going to cover, I could make an entire podcast on this guy, and I more than likely will. I might make a intermediary one after this, like, as an in between thing for the Crusades because we've talked about a lot of stuff from the European perspective because it is the Crusades. So naturally, it's going to focus more on that. But there's all kinds of different characters and figures, especially from the Muslim side, that their stories would, I think, need to be told. And so Saladin was the Sultan of Egypt and Syria, and his vision was to unite the Muslim world and to destroy the Christian presence in the Middle East. Honestly, again, I, I could just do a whole podcast on him, but because this, this guy's story is great. Uh, but, I, again, I digress. Saladin's first blow was to the destruction of a Latin army that was led by the Kingdom of Jerusalem at the Battle of Hattin, which, remember when we did military disasters? Like, yeah. that one podcast episode? Like that That's what this is. Well, wait, no. That's one of our Patreon-exclusive Patreon ones. Yes, okay. That, for those of you that are listening, that, that's one of the Patreon-exclusive episodes that's up there is covering all these military disasters and how they went down. So that battle was one that we covered there on the exclusives, but my God, that was a really bad one for the Crusaders. And allow me to give a little bit of a recap for those of you who are not Patreon members. So the Battle of Hattin on July 4th, 1187, was a battle in northern Palestine that marked the defeat and annihilation of the Christian Crusader armies of Guy de Lusignan, the king of Jerusalem, by the Muslim forces of Saladin. And it paved the way for the Muslim reconquest of the city of Jerusalem and of the greater part of the three crusader states, the county of Tripoli, the principality of Antioch, and, of course, the kingdom of Jerusalem, which completely nullified the achievements that were made in the Holy Land by the leaders of the crusaders in the first place and alerted Europe to the need for a third crusade. 
So in July of 1187, the Crusaders were camped at Sepphoris, around 20 miles west of the Sea of Galilee, when word reached them that Saladin had attacked the city of Tiberias along the lake. The Crusaders' forces included several hundred Templars and Hospitallers, which were militant monastic orders that Saladin ranked among the Christian army's most effective fighters. Like, these guys were the best of the best. And on July 3rd, around 20,000 Crusaders abandoned their camp to go to the relief of the besieged city. And their route took them through a hot, like, desert, arid plain, where halfway through to Tiberias, they ran out of water while they were continuously being harassed by Saladin's cavalry. Because the, the Muslim forces, they didn't just use heavy cavalry. They did have heavy cavalry, but their primary strength was, say, light, mobile horse archers and things like that. So it was very good for harassment. The Crusaders' condition only worsened where, after a night spent completely without water, the next morning they continued their march and were confronted by Saladin's army. So, confronted by the army, the Crusaders, who were no longer able to fight effectively, left the road and were just driven back against two of the largest hills, the Horns of Hattin, by the Muslims. Although mounted elements of the Crusader army made repeated charge against the Muslim lines, it, it wasn't able to do anything. The 30,000-man Muslim army slaughtered the majority of the Crusaders on the field and captured a shard of the True Cross, which was this Christian relic that had been carried into battle by the Bishop of Acre. And so Saladin spared the lives of King Guy and most of the Christian lords, but he personally slew Reginald of Chatillon, who he regarded as an oathbreaker because... It, Honestly, it's because of that guy breaking the truces in the first place and attacking, like, Muslim... What would be the term? Uh, pilgrims. In fact, not pilgrims. Um, would that be... Yeah, there would be pilgrims for it here. P like, people that would be trying to go on a, a religious pilgrimage, effectively. So, he killed them and was generally regarded as an oathbreaker. Saladin also ordered the execution of virtually all the ca captured Templars and the Hospitallers. Only the Templar Grand Master, Gerard de Ridefort, avoided the blade. And the day after the battle, Saladin launched his campaign to retake the city of Jerusalem. Thus, Saladin was able to take control of the cities of Acre, Tiberias, Caesarea, Nazareth, Jaffa, and even the holiest of holies, Jerusalem. Though he was remarkably lenient with its Christian captives compared to the butchery of the First Crusade. I mean, when the First Crusade, when they took Jerusalem, if you remember, Gabby, they basically slaughtered a lot of the inhabitants of the city. And so after recapturing Jerusalem almost a century earlier, Saladin accepted ransoms, or not earlier, later, right? That's the term. Yeah, because it was a century later. And so after he captured it, Saladin did accept ransoms for those Latin Christians who could afford to buy their freedom, and he just enslaved the rest instead of killing them, which I mean, I guess, you know, it, it, it's better. Eastern Christians, though, were permitted to remain in Jerusalem as a, as a protected minority group, as long as it wasn't any of the Latin Westerners who had invaded. The Latin East was all but destroyed. Only Tyre remained in Christian hands, under the command of Conrad of Montferrat. But it would prove a very useful foothold for the coming fight. So, this wasn't good, it, at least for the Christians. It was a very bad thing. In fact, Pope Urban III, who was Pope at the time, he's reportedly said to have died on shock when he received the news that Jerusalem had fallen. And his successor, Pope Gregory VIII, 
appealed to the leaders of Christendom for aid again, and the first to respond to the papal appeal was King William II of Sicily, who sailed immediately for the east, although he then perished very shortly after in November of 1189. In January of 1188, Henry II of England and his son Richard, then Duke of Aquitaine, and also Philip II Augustus of France, took the cross and made a solemn vow to recover the holy city. The first king among them to actually go, though, and mobilize, that's the one that you remember, Gabby. That, that's Frederick I Barbarossa. And he traveled with his army through Thrace in the spring of 1190, just like Saladin. I could do an entire podcast on this guy because, again, he, he is... His political career was insane. Seriously, both in terms of what he accomplished and how long he ruled. And, and I'll give you this an example that just shows how much of a chad this guy was in terms of his character. So around the 23rd of November, 1187, Frederick received letters that had been sent to him from the rulers of the Crusader states in Near East, urging them, you know, to come to their aid. And around the 1st of December, Cardinal Henry of Marcy preached a crusade sermon before Frederick and a public assembly in Strasbourg. Frederick expressed support for the crusade, but he declined to take the cross on the grounds of his ongoing conflict with Archbishop Philip of Cologne. He did, however, urge King Philip II of France to take the cross through messengers and then in a personal meeting with the king on the 25th of December. So he wanted to go, but he couldn't because he was a little bit occupied at home. This is a whole thing with HRE over the centuries is that they always had internal problems. Like that, That's one of the reasons why the HRE didn't just take over everything is they were always plagued with internal problems. And so a few months later, in March of 1188, at the Diet of Maine, the Archbishop of Cologne submitted to Frederick. He won. The Bishop of Wurzburg, Godfrey of Spitzenberg, then preached a crusade sermon, and Frederick asked the assembly once again whether he should take the cross. And at the universal acclaim of the assembly, he took the crusader's vow, and his second son, the Duke of Swabia, followed suit. The eldest, Henry VI, he had to remain back in Germany as regent, and at Mainz, Frederick proclaimed a general expedition against what he called the, the pagans. Which, I mean, they, they weren't pagans. It, they were still people of the book. As like That's the Muslim term for those of you who may not be aware, who were Christian or Jews. Essentially, it, fellow members of the Abrahamic faiths, as they would term. But for a number of Christians, they just refer to the Muslims as pagans, effectively. They're just non, non-Christian here. And so he began to prepare for it on the 17th of April, 1188, all the way to the 8th of April, 1189, just scheduling everything to happen, got his army set to assemble at Regensburg and be ready to go on the 23rd of April, 1189. Because that's, it sounds like a long time, like, okay, wait, hold on. So he said he's going to go, and it's going to take him a year to get his forces. And yes, that's, that's literally how this works. Okay, so Gabby, how much do you know about mustering? I know I did a video on this before on my TikTok channel, but... On mustering? Yeah, mustering. Like, if a, if a medieval army was trying to get together, how does that work? Do you, do you remember? Uh, I feel like this... I feel really at fact right now, because I've been asked many questions, and I didn't study <laughs> for this quiz. There was no prior reading. Like, I didn't get notes. Hey, everyone. It's like who you here. And before we get back to the show, I would just like to thank today's sponsor, eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. 
Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Um, If I had to guess, I would say they're trying to muster up the army they're trying to get together they're trying to recruit yeah yeah that's um that's all i can that's the limit okay yeah i mean you're not wrong there but it's essentially repeating what i I, said i would appreciate it if for the next time you're gonna pop quiz me (laughs) i get some notes okay please so for those of you who are not aware how it really worked with medieval armies essentially it's not like you, you don't have a permanent standing army you have to raise levies, you have to get all the knights together, get their affairs in order, etc. So, since it's not a personal professional force that's always ready to go, they have to set things aside and prepare for it, and so usually what you do is you pick a meeting point, that's the mustering point, and then you would set a date. So, by all by all the troops should be ready by this point in the future. And so, you're, with really big armies, with really big states, this meant that it would take a while. So, it wasn't just like, hey, we're going to meet here, you know a month from now because you got to send messengers around the entire empire so it would usually take about a year to get ready and get everything there so this this goes on the crusades and wars in general are really expensive so now that he had a year to get things ready it was time to raise some money so at Strasbourg Frederick imposed a small tax on the Jews of Germany in order to fund the crusade and this is really the story that I'm going to get into explain as to why he was such a Chad. Which sounds weird. It's not because of taxing Jews. It's, it's precisely because of how he went about doing this. So he set this tax on Jews, and in doing so, he also put the Jews under his protection and forbade anyone to preach against them. And so when mobs threatened the Jews in Mainz on the eve of the assembly in March, Frederick sent in the imperial marshal to disperse them. Rabbi Moses then met with the emperor, which resulted in an imperial edict threatening maiming or death for anyone who maimed or killed a Jew. So, yeah, do you remember what happened during the like the first crusade as an example? Remember the People's Crusade, that army of peasants that was just marching through the Balkans? Yeah, they just they, caused destruction and they actually had no real organization. And murdered a lot of Jews. Yeah. that that That's specifically where that came from. So... Jews, though persecuted, typically did have more wealth or could have more wealth specifically because they fit a lot of jobs that necessarily Christians couldn't have like banking and that kind of thing, which in turn meant that they could usually be more financially successful. They made very good merchants and advisors because they were typically well-educated. So he used them for money, yes, but he also protected them and didn't have them killed, which is significantly better than almost any, like, ruler or just general population of the time for what it is that they would do. It's it's a good thing. And so on the 29th of March, Frederick and that rabbi, they rode through the streets together, just showing that they were together, and they successfully prevented a repeat of the massacres that had accompanied the First Crusade and also the Second Crusades in Germany. Because Frederick had signed a treaty of friendship with Saladin back in 1175, he felt that it was necessary to give Saladin a notice of the termination of their alliance. So rather than launch a sneak attack, again, this is just gauche to his character. So what he did is he sent a letter to him that just said like, hey, 
hey, so uh, I'm going on a crusade. Uh, our alliance, that the thing of friendship, sorry, it's over, buddy. Like, he just, he let him know rather than just showing up with an army and attacking him when Saladin just expected him as a... I'm not going to use the term friend, but I will use the term, like, associate that is not going to hurt me. Does that make sense? Kind of, yeah. <laughs> like, I have a lot of people who aren't my friends. We just have to work together. So, and, I get it. And so on the 26th of May, 1188, he sent one of his counts to present an ultimatum to Saladin and other envoys into Hungary and Constantinople in order to prepare them for his arrival and to seek safe passage. Which, going into Constantinople, the Byzantine Emperor Isaac II Angelos, he was understandably, considering the past, very wary of this Western army that was going to be passing through his territory. While from the other side, the Westerners were very deeply suspicious of Isaac's new alliance with Saladin, a feeling that was based on some reality as Isaac did actually try to impede the Crusaders' progress through the Middle East. And so when Frederick occupied Adrianople in Thrace, the Byzantines became way more helpful to their fellow Christians. But, I mean, the Emperor was probably just really happy that the Germans were going away and passed on into Anatolia. So the armies coming from Western Europe pushed on through Anatolia, where they were victorious at the Battle of Philomenium and defeated the Turks in the Battle of Iconium, eventually reaching as far as Sicilian Armenia. The approach of Barbarossa's victorious German army greatly concerned Saladin, who was forced to weaken his force in the Siege of Acre and send troops to the north in order to block the arrival of the Germans. And at this point, the Germans seemed unstoppable. But then, as you know very well from the story that we've talked about extensively for our channel, disaster then struck on the 10th of June, 1190. The Holy Roman Emperor drowned in an accident, more than likely. Like, we don't exactly know the exact reason, but the most common one, I guess you could say, or theory, was that he simply fell from his horse or suffered a heart attack while he was swimming across the River Salop, as he was really known to go on swims. Just, that was a thing that he liked to do, but he was an old man. Like, that's the thing. We're not talking about a young guy in his 30s that is going on this crusade. I can't exactly remember how old he was. I'm pretty sure he was in his 60s at the time. I'm pretty sure that was the case. But he, he was... He was definitely older, and he liked to go swimming, and so it's theorized that he was either thrown from his horse and hit his head, or had a heart attack while he was swimming. Either way, he drowned in the river on his way to the Holy Land. And so his death caused several thousand German soldiers to just leave the force and return home. The German-Hungarian army was then struck with disease once they got near Antioch, weakening it further. In the end, only 5,000 soldiers less than a third of the original force arrived in Acre. And so Barbarossa's son, Frederick VI of Swabia, he did carry on the remnants of the German army along with the Hungarian army under the command of Prince Geza with the aim of burying the emperor in Jerusalem. But, like, they tried to keep his body with them so that, you know, they once they took Jerusalem, they could bury him then because, of course, he's going to be want to be buried in the holiest of holy cities. But they tried to preserve his body in vinegar and it didn't work. So his flesh instead was interred at the Church of St. Peter in Antioch, and then his bones in the Cathedral of Tyre. His heart and inner organs were then put in St. Paul's Church in Tarsus. The crusade now would have to rely on the English and French armies, which 
were temporary allies who were very much not fond of each other at the best of times. Like they, they spent pretty much the majority of their history at war with one another. Although a few German troops made it um, back. I'm so sorry to interrupt. I just, they pickled his body. Yeah, yeah. They, I mean, they tried. They they tried to pickle his body. It didn't body. work. I'm so sorry. I just had to say that. Thank you. Bye. <laughs> I know. There's a, there's a lot of different ways for it here. But yeah. I, just can't even, I mean, I get the logic behind it, but can you imagine? I can't imagine. What? You don't want a 70-year-old man covered in vinegar that you're going to cart around with you through a did hot it, desert climate? Did it fail because it didn't have a jar big enough? Actually, you know, I'm not sure why it failed. I just think that it didn't work because it probably went on too long. Interesting. Okay, I just would like to request formally that I never be pickled. <laughs> I'm just making sure we... I didn't consider that was an option, but now that I have, I would just like to make it clear that I do not want that option. Okay. Thank you. It's all right. So, uh, shot out of a cannon. Got it. Okay, yeah, that's better than pickling. <laughs> I'll put a pickle in your mouth and then fire you out of a cannon. Just for you. Okay, that works. <laughs> So where was I? Um, like, oh yeah, yeah. Okay, so they were like they were marching through. The 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 English and the French army were they needed to stop fighting, and they had to march now to the Holy Land. But in order to do so, first they would need to raise money, and so to that end, both imposed a Saladin tithe on the citizens in order to finance the venture. And in, in case you're wondering what that is, it, the tithe was a literal flat tax of 10% on the revenues and movable properties. And that tithe was assessed by dioceses rather than by shires, and so the local sheriffs and general tax collectors had no role in the collection. It was just the church. And so the money was collected instead by the local priest or bishop, the dean of the local church, the local baron, and a sergeant of the king, as well as probably a knight, like one of the knights templar or a knight hospitaller, whose orders essentially meant that uh, they were going to help defend the Holy Land by ensuring that people paid their tax and didn't resist. The gist. Because assessments were made by oaths in rural areas and by a jury in urban areas, and then there would be certain items that were exempt from the assessment. And I, I, actually, I actually have a, um, I, I got a quote for here. The law, I think it would be, or the statement, however you want to call it, it, it went like this. This year, each man shall give in alms a tenth of his revenues and movables, with the exception of the arms, horses, and garments of the knights, and likewise with the exception of horses, books, garments, and vestments, and all appetrances of whatever sort used by clerics in divine service, and the precious stones belonging to both the clerics and laymen. And so that was the statement. But anyone who joined the crusade was exempt from the tithe altogether. And that was meant to encourage participation, and many did indeed join, in order to just avoid the tallage. All other landowner, like landowners, both clerics and laymen, had to pay. And if anyone disagreed with the assessment of their property, they were either imprisoned or excommunicated, or both, effectively. So, essentially the gist of it is, to, to explain what that is, all... Revenues and movables, with the exception of arms, horses, and garments of the knights. So essentially, if you were, even if you were a knight who didn't go on crusade, at the very least, your 
like the things that made you a knight, your knight, your horse, your armor, your weapons, everything, that wasn't going to be taxed. But for anyone else, like literally all of your stuff was going to be taxed. So it's like someone would essentially come into your home. They would look at all of your stuff and go, huh, you have a couch. What is the value of that couch? $800? Okay, 10%, $80. You have to pay $80 in tax on that. Hmm. Oh, hey, that's a nice TV in there. How much is that TV? $300? Okay, $30 tax. And essentially tallying up everything. Like they would take 10% of everything that you had, every object, everything. With the exception of, if you remember that like, next part that I said in here, books, garments, investments, and all apertures that were used by clerics and divine service, and the precious stones belonging to both clerics and laymen. Precious stones. So, so check this, check this. They, like, if you were just a person and you had a necklace with like a big ruby on it or something like that, and it was worth, you know, $1,000, you want to pay like $100 tax. But if you were a priest and you had a necklace with a ruby on it, no tax. It, essentially, it was, like this was just a free pass for the clergy to just continue to be rich. Like that, because that, that's another thing in history. Like some of the wealthiest people ever were specifically members of the clergy. There's this whole thing going back with like the history of the church and wealth and land ownership. I, I could do it again in an entire extensive podcast that on that. like parallels, I guess, with like the wealthiest people being in politics. Yeah, kind of. It's like, imagine you get a politician that goes in and, you know, that politician came from, you know, it's, it's like we're in Kentucky. They, they, let's say their their family owns a coal mine or something like that. Like they're literally from a coal mining family. And what do they do? Uh, they entirely remove the regulations on it, like emissions when it comes to coal. Like that's not just going to happen. Like they're not just going to be able to do that, mind you. But it's a sec- essentially the same equivalent. It's like that. Or, or well, it's you can like, actually just look at a lot of people with a lot of money who have a lot of connections actually, no. to all of those really big companies. Yes, but, but but better comparison. It's like a person who came from that family passes a law that increases, like they, they start fining people based off emissions from all other companies, but companies that provide power are exempt. And it just so happens that they come from a coal mining family and their coal uh, producing thing is, you know, designed for power. And that gives them an exemption. It, it, it's it's just that same kind of crap. But yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. So that's exactly what would happen. And because they did this, because it was the church that did that, and it was of a religious nature, most of these, the people, they weren't exactly, they weren't angry at the king, mind you. They were angry at the church because it was the church that was enforcing this. And it did work. I mean, they both raised money and simultaneously it got a lot of people to sign up like they, they signed up for crusade in order to avoid paying tax because i mean just think about that gabby what would happen if we had to pay 10 percent on all of our property for everything as tax not just the money you made that year but all of your property yeah no no like that imagine if it was property tax but property tax wasn't just your house it was everything inside of your house i would sell everything you know pretty much minimalism yay yeah well, that's what people pretty much had to do is like, let's say you had 10 pigs. So you had to give one of your pigs to the state effectively as tax. What would the state even do with that pig? I Take it with them as food. Well, no. Okay. So you know how like you'd have to pay some of your crops to like the king as tax? Yeah. In some, what did they do with the crops? 
Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Usually sell it to the market. Uh, okay, so think of it like this. Yes, it would supply food, but you took a couple bushels of wheat as a kind of as a tax, right? The king would then, through their agents, send take these bushels to market and sell them effectively. Like they preferred payment and coinage, yes, naturally, of course. But if it was payment and goods, then you did what you could with goods. Okay, that makes sense. Yep, yep. So that that's how it worked. I mean, again, I could do I could do so many different podcasts on this stuff. That same tithe was levied in France, but Philip did not have the same kind of centralized, controlled government and faced way more opposition that he just simply couldn't really control. I, I could do an entire podcast on medieval France as it is essentially the pinnacle of the pure medieval state of where the king only controls the city of Paris and everything else is controlled by nobles. You know how when we're thinking of medieval times, we're usually thinking England. Like, it's English, we're English-speaking, naturally. We, we think of, like, medieval England and the lords and ladies and that kind of thing, right? I mean, you, you watch Bridgerton, so the nobles in there as well. Listen, don't call me out on a public podcast for watching Bridgerton. You know, I don't watch Bridgerton, you guys. I mentioned it uh-huh. one time, and he thinks I watch uh-huh. Bridgerton. Uh-huh. Anyway... We think of that in England, but France is honestly the most medieval of the medieval states. It really was. So under the concepts of feudalism, the king, in some places, controls all the land, sort of. Like, they they own all the land, but they give the land to nobles, whether it's like dukes or counts, barons, etc., just lowering and lowering levels of nobility. And each one of those nobles then has nobles under them who serve them and then knights under those who serve those and then peasants under those that serve those. So the actual king controlled the kingdom through a series of nobles who in turn controlled people under them. And that's how that worked. So you could have a case of someone from another kingdom inheriting land because they were a relative and all those relatives died out. And so someone from another kingdom inherited the land and then all of a sudden that noble that inherited the land, well, they didn't swear a fealty to the, to the king of the land that it previously was under. They swore a oath of fealty to their previous king. And that, that exact way, through these ties of marriage, is how England, for quite a bit of history, immediate history, how they came to own half of France. At one point, England owned more of France than France did. How? Are you, are you going to just leave us there? Uh, d- d- specifically like the Duchy of Aquitaine and Gascon. Or Gascon? I'm, I'm actually not sure how I'd pronounce that here. But essentially, they controlled it through marriage ties and that sort of thing. And that's one of the things that then led to the Hundred Years' War and the dispute over whether or not the English royal family, which was tied to the French royal family, was the one that could take over the crown. I'm getting way off topic. I'm getting way, way off topic. That's, that's the gist of it. France was the pinnacle of medieval medievalness. And in the end, 
he couldn't really do as much to raise money. So Henry II, who was the king of England, he never actually went on the crusade. And in 1189, he was actually involved in a war with Philip and his own son, Richard, and was then accused of spending the tithe on provisions for this war. So they collected all this money for this tithe, and then as it turns out, these kings that were supposed to go on crusade were actually fighting each other, and then Henry was just using the money that was supposed to go to crusade to actually fight Philip in France. Yeah, there's a lot of that that ends up happening, the English trying to fight the, Fran the French in France. So that later that year, Henry dies, and it's the year before the crusade really went underway, and according to Gerodotus, this was divine punishment for such a harsh tithe that was issued. Richard then succeeded him and found that, okay, the treasury was full, but he collected even more money by selling land and by imposing various fines throughout England. Altogether, Henry and Richard succeeded in raising approximately 100,000 silver marks with the Saladin tithe, which that, that, that's a big amount of money in here. That, that's a, for a good-sized army. That's, a, that, that, that's nice. So with his war chest full, Richard took the sea route to the Middle East and as an experienced campaigner, was meticulous as ever. He swung his entire kingdom's resources towards the campaign, amassing a fleet of 100 ships and 60,000 horses. Meanwhile, in France, Philip II had amassed his army of 650 knights, along with 1,300 squires and a much larger number of infantry. And this army also sailed to the Levant but this time thanks to Genoese ships who would take it to Acre. And so in April of 1190, King Richard's fleet departed from Dartmouth under the command of Richard de Camville and Robert de Sable on their way to meet their king in Marseille in southern France on the coast of the Mediterranean. Richard arrived in Marseille and found that the rest of his fleet had not gotten there. And being a man of action, he got bored. And so instead of waiting for them, he hired ships and just left for Sicily on the 7th of August, visiting several different places in Italy en route. Like, he, he basically went touristing through Italy for a while until he got to Sicily on the 23rd of September. Meanwhile, the English fleet eventually arrived in Marseille on the 22nd of August, and finding that their king had just left, they sailed directly to Messina and arrived actually before him on the 14th of December. Or not December, September. So the army shows up late, finds that he's already left, and is like, well, crap, okay. So they leave and beat him to the place that they're supposed to go because he decides, well, screw it, they're not here. I'm just going to go on a vacation in Italy, pretty much. And while all of this is happening, we need to set some groundwork to understand what was going on in Sicily first before the arrival of the Crusaders. So the fleet was to assemble at Sicily before heading further east, and when Richard arrived on the island, it was completely in turmoil. The long-ruling king of S Sicily, William II, the Good, had just died, and his illegitimate cousin, Tancred of Lech, took the throne in 1189, even though the legitimate heir was actually William's aunt, Constance. And domestic squabbles would normally have not really bothered Richard, except... William's widow was his sister, Joanna. And now that she was widowed, she would have received she should have received her dowry back from Tancred, but Tancred refused. Instead, like, like that's the whole point of a dowry. Like, Gabby, you remember how dowries work, right? I mean, is actually how how did 
How did dowries work in some other place? I know it's different all around the world. Didn't your mom have a dowry? No, my mom didn't, but my grandparents did. But it's just like a lot of like, when you get married, you pay. Um, when my uncle did, my own, well, my uncle's like wife did. You just pay. Once they get married, everyone writes a check. Okay, but let me. I gotta ask this because this is essentially how it works. The idea of dowries here was that it was supposed to be that the dowry wasn't just to start the family. The dowry was specifically so that that was the wife's money so that if the husband died and she was widowed that was her dowry that was her stuff to take care of herself after well where i'm from is just to get the new couple started in life so they'd probably use it to put a down payment on a house or buy a car whatever they need at that time that would make life easier but usually people use it towards a house that makes sense that makes sense this is how it worked really in medieval Europe. Like, that was the point of a dowry here. I was curious. I was curious. That makes actually a lot of sense. So the dowry belonged to his sister, and now that she was widowed, she should have received it back. But Tancred refused. Instead, he kept Joanna as a captive so that he didn't have to give back a dowry. And Richard demanded that Tancred release her and pay back the dowry, but he said, F off. And only gave her, like, he released her, but he only gave a small sum of money. And so in response, Richard then captured the Sicilian city of Messina. And Tancred, seeing that he was going to lose his entire kingdom to this crusader army that had literally just showed up on his doorstep, he capitulated and promised to return the dowry. After wintering on the island in 1191, Richard and his fleet then set off to be in the Holy Land. And things seemed to be okay. But then Richard and Philip kind of fell out over the issue of Richard's marriage as Richard had decided to marry Berengina, or not Berengina, Beren, Beren, Berengaria, that's how you'd say her name, Berengaria of Navarre, breaking off his long-standing betrothal to Philip's half-sister, Alice, who was his former wife. Like, now we're getting into that really spicy Bridgerton stuff here, Gabby. Now we're getting to that really, like, noble espionage, love affairs, and all this crap. I don't know what you're talking about because I've never seen Bridgerton. Okay, okay, we're just going to leave it at that. But anyway, Philip left for Sicily directly for the Middle East on the 30th of March 1191, and he arrived in Tyre in April, where he joined the Siege of Acre on the 20th of April. Richard, though, did not set off from Sicily until the 10th of April. So, now at sea, Richard headed for the bastion of Europe's presence in the Holy Land, Acre. But a storm on his way drove his fleet apart, wrecking several ships along the shore of Cyprus. And Cyprus, now that would be Richard's second island adventure before he would reach his actual crusading goal in the Holy Land. You see, Cyprus was ruled by a local despot named Isaac Komenos, who was the self-styled emperor of Cyprus. He was this vassal of the Byzantine emperor, but he declared his independence and that he was actually his own emperor. And so he usurped control of the island from the Byzantine Empire in 1184, and upon finding Richard's crusaders washed up on his shore, he took them prisoner and confiscated the English treasure that had been taken from the shipwrecks. The ships carrying both Joanna and Richard's fiance, Berengaria, had taken shelter from the storm in the Cypriot port of Limassol, but Isaac just, he, he, he basically captured them and kept them as prisoners on board. 
And so once Richard learned of this, he tried to parlay with Isaac, requesting that Isaac compensate him for the wrongs his people had suffered. And Isaac supposedly responded by just insulting him, calling him a bitch, basically. Just really, really railing into him. And according to the contemporary English source, Isaac prided himself greatly on the imperial rank which he had usurped. Exuberant at having remained unpunished for so long, he now thought that he could do whatever he liked. And so diplomacy having failed, Richard then turned to military strength, as he naturally had, just, you know, in Sicily. So Richard goes and then besieges Limassol and quickly captures the city, forcing Isaac to flee and rescues his sister and fiancé. Richard's army then pursues Isaac, who gathered a numerous army of his own in order to counter Richard. But when the forces enter battle, the result was another English victory, just a completely crushing victory. And according to another source, Richard just rode bravely into the fray and unhorsed Isaac directly, causing Isaac to run away and his army to be slaughtered. And so Richard captured Isaac's banner and hunted down the remnants of his army. After Isaac's uh, soldiers had been mopped up, Richard then marched on Isaac's capital of Nicosia. Isaac, recognizing that, okay, this was bad, this is really bad, he capitulated. He offered over his castles, he offered everything, and he promised to pay treasure and compensation for the ills he had inflicted, essentially just giving up, including, like, he was supposed to send 500 men as well to help with the crusade, which, I mean, good, you're, you're going to take 500 more men, that'll be useful. But the very next day, Isaac fled. Hearing a rumor from one of his knights that Richard was actually planning on betraying him and place him in chains. Isaac apparently had actually a severe phobia of chains, like specifically being placed in irons, as the term would be. So whips and chains did not excite him. Well, it did, but the excitement was fear. Interesting. Yes. (laughs) So Richard pursues Isaac again, and several skirmishes were then fought in which the English won easily. Isaac then reportedly mutilated English soldiers that he had captured, and when he was trapped on the northernmost tip of Cyprus at Cape Andreas, he surrendered again and groveled before Richard begging for forgiveness. He begged that Richard not place him in iron shackles. So you know what he did? What did he do? Richard agreed. He didn't place him in iron shackles. That's so sweet. He placed him in silver ones instead. What's the difference? He heard about his fear, how he didn't want to be placed in irons, so he had shackles made out of silver. Well, that's kind of... And captured him, and strung him up. That's, that's kind of kinky, but yeah. <laughs> wait, hold on, hold on. Kinky, wait. This is going into I a mean, completely different direction. I got him silver chains. Okay, you can edit this all out. No, this is genuinely funny. <laughs> You're not going to edit this out? No, this is honestly hilarious. I just did not expect that to be taken in that direction. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Wheel of urine! 
Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Wait, did he kill him? Uh... Oh, wait. Actually, that's a good question. I don't think... No, I think he just got arrested and thrown into a dungeon. Now, that being said, that being said, being thrown in a dungeon when that kind of thing would happen, um, you're not likely to live long. Medieval dungeons were not exactly the most hygienic of places. Usually, you'd you'd just die of disease or malnutrition or depression or, you know, a combination of all those things. It wasn't pleasant. It it just it really was not pleasant. Like really before the You see how we have the modern prison system and in prisons they'll have shit like TVs and things in there. There's TVs in modern prisons? Y- yeah. 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 It's actually one of the things where it, I don't want to get into any of the like modern stuff for it here, but there is actually a bad case of just there's a little dissection from this. A number of homeless people have specifically gone out of their way to commit crimes publicly to let themselves be captured and sent to jail because it's actually something that's more, I don't want to use the term cushy, but it's more stable and better than their than their life that they live. Actually, I learned that in New York, a lot of people would commit crimes and then they just let them go. I don't know why they just let them go, but they do. And so there's just like a lot of crime because no one, you know, I don't know. Yeah, this there's is a such lot of... a weird segue. I know we got there's so many different spinoffs of everything that goes in here. Anyway, all right, just back back to things, back to things. So he throws them in silver shackles. Richard, that had he had gone on crusade to retake Jerusalem, but by accident he was now the ruler of Cyprus. He now owned the entire island. Like if Isaac had not mistreated the English shipwrecked survivors, Richard likely would have never gone on the island, or you know, for that matter, become its ruler. Unlike the leaders of the First Crusade, Richard was not in the East to win new lands. He was only there to recapture the Holy Land for Christian, like for Christendom. That's all that he cared about. So he was very impatient to continue on to the Holy Land, and so Cyprus was essentially unnecessary. It was like this unwanted distraction. It's like, imagine, it, imagine Gabby, if you inherited a house. Like, imagine you inherited a house that was a mansion, but now not only... Which sounds awesome at first, but now you have to pay property tax on it, and you discover that one of the conditions for inheriting the mansion was that it comes with really annoying, distant family members who also have to live there, and they're you you have to basically take care of them, and you don't want to. What if I sold the house? Oh my! Can I God. sell the house? Oh, Gabby, it's very ironic that you would say that because that's literally what he did. Lovely. No, See? I I kid you not that that's actually what happened. So. Again, unlike the other leaders, he wasn't there for, you know, taking lands. He would take the money, though. Richard's troops plundered the island's wealth, and he imposed a 50% tax to help fund his crusade. Remember how that whole thing about the Saladin tithe and 10% of all movables? Yeah. Yeah, He imposed a 50% tax. 50. 50. Yeah, half of everything they owned. I would simply move. Well, some of the Cypriots did try to rebel, but the uprising was crushed and the leader of it executed. 
Richard then sold Cyprus to the Knights Templar for even more money and to do away with the whole thing because he didn't want it. And so before he left, he then took the opportunity to marry his fiancée, Berengaria, right then and there. So it was just done. So now it is finally time to get to that whole crusading thing because, my God, we um we, we kind of been on a long... This is a long one. Like, I mean, this is probably a really long podcast at this point. But I really wanted to get back into it because there's just there's so much. And among all things, I knew this one was going to be a doozy because, again, it's the third crusade. This thing is huge. There's just there's so much detail. It is the classic crusade. So the first major battle of the campaign was at Acre on the coast of the kingdom of Jerusalem. Actually, the, I mean, the city had already been under siege for some time by an army led by the French nobleman of Guy of Lusignan, king of what remained of the kingdom of Jerusalem. However, Guy was now struggling as he now faced an army that was sent by Saladin to relieve the city. Fortunately for the Latin ruler, several crusader armies arrived shortly after in order to support it. The remains of Frederick's army, a German contingent led by Duke Leopold of Austria, which had traveled by sea, a French force that was led by Henry of Champagne, and the armies of Richard I and Philip II. By early June 1191, all crusades or crusaders, rather, were in place and they were ready to take the city. A heavy and sustained bombardment using catapults was then launched, but the protracted siege was only lifted, or not lifted, succeeded. Lifted would be that it was take, that it was failed. So it succeeded, essentially, after sappers offered with cash incentives by Richard, they undermined the fortification of the walls of the city on the land side and the English king's siege engines and reputations and divisions in Saladin's own army were additional factors in the victory. The lion-hearted, as Richard was now known thanks to all of his courage and audacity in warfare, had achieved in five weeks what Guy had failed to do in 20. The city was finally captured on the 12th of July, 1191, and with it, significantly, 70 ships, which was the bulk of Saladin's navy. According to legend, Richard had been ill at the time, perhaps but with like scurvy or some other kind of disease, and so he had his retainers carry him on a stretcher so that he could fire at the enemy battlements with his crossbow. Like, just imagine that. You're, like, you're, you're so. Imagine me on my deathbed, essentially with pneumonia, like I was here this past week. And it's like, nah, nah, nah. Roll me over there. I want to just. I want to fire a crossbow. It was pretty great. So the Muslim defenders then surrendered the city to the Christian army, which was in violation of their orders from Saladin, and they agreed to surrender 2,000 prisoners to pay 200,000, not 200,000, yeah, no, it was, 200,000 gold pieces, and to return the piece of the true cross, that venerated Christian relic from earlier. Richard, Philip, and Leopold V of Austria then had a bit of a disagreement over the distribution of spoils from their victory. You see, Richard deeply insulted Leopold when Leopold put up his standard on the wall and Richard went over, grabbed it, and just threw it on the ground. And he did that. It, oh, God, it was, I'll, I'll explain. This was an action that was going to have really big, dire consequences for him in the future. The disagreement essentially came from the fact that Leopold was a duke and not a king. And so Richard's like, no, I'm going to throw your stuff down. You're not entitled to this. You are not entitled to a third of the spoils of war. Because you are not our equal. And so that was a further cause of dissension among the ranks. Along with the fact that Richard supported Guy of Lusignan, king of Jerusalem, for taking things over, 
while Philip Augustus and Leopold actually supported his rival for the title, Conrad of Montferrat. So the Crusaders were not in agreement on what things needed to be done with the land. King Philip Augustus of France, now that he had done this, he was anxious to return home, though. He did not enjoy being eclipsed by Richard, and his health over the journey had suffered, and he, he, he wasn't happy with all this. He was especially not happy with the fact that his sister had been tossed aside by Richard for her, him to uh, marry this new girl. And this caused him to set sail back for France on the 3rd of August, abandoning the crusade. But, thankfully, at least, he did leave behind a large portion of his army, and also the money to pay them, leaving Richard as the sole leader of the Third Crusade. So out of three kings, they're not even at Jerusalem left. They're like, yet, they're down to one. Just Richard the Lionheart is all that's left. An exchange of prisoners from Acker was arranged with Saladin, but um, there was a bit of a problem. Richard believed that Saladin was creating delays, and so consequently he ordered the massacre of all of the Muslim prisoners. 2,700 prisoners were then executed outside the walls of Acker. And they were killed within sight of Saladin's army, who made attempts at rescue, but were driven back. Yeah, that, that, it was a dick move. It was a major dick move, and to this day remains the largest stain on Richard's reputation. Because there's this whole thing with Richard and Saladin being, like, the men of honor, like, the true great lords of the, of the Crusades. And that, that was Richard's big stain, was him doing that. On the 7th of September, 1191, at Arsuf, the armies of Richard and Saladin clashed in battle. Richard's outnumbered army rose at first light in an attempt to seize Arsuf, and the Crusaders formed their army estimated around 200, like 1,200 force, like horse and 10,000 footmen in three columns. Saladin, though, commanded around 20,000 men, significantly greater, which included around 10,000 cavalry. Richard at first progressed towards Arsuf, without any trouble, but at around 11 a.m., Saladin's cavalry began to launch all these attacks on his left flank. Richard endeavored to keep the army moving and maintain formation, but as the afternoon progressed, the terrible heat and growing casualties led the knights' hospitalers, as well as several squadrons of French knights, to just charge, without orders, at the Muslims. And this actually drove back the Muslim right wing. Which, Richard didn't, instead of issuing like commands like, oh no, stop it, we need to go, we, we can't do this, he saw that this was going to work and instead ordered the Knights Templar, the Bretons, and the Angevins to advance in a further charge that repelled Saladin's left wing. And this military brilliance prevailed, and it actually forced the Muslims to retreat, and they sustained heavy losses, which is estimated at around 7,000 men, and that included 32 emirs, so like those, the lords, effectively, that would serve under Saladin and to retreat. The Crusaders only suffered slight casualties. And this really hurt Saladin's prestige. He never again risked an open battle with Richard for the remainder of the crusade. The crusader army proceeded to Jaffa, and then they began to strengthen it as a garrison for Jerusalem. He went on to reestablish Christian control of the coast and refortified Ascalon to the south. The army arrived in the foothills, like just within sight of the holy city, on the 3rd of January, 1192. But at this point, they were exhausted. They were short of supplies, and sickness was beginning to spread rapidly through the camps. Uh, honestly, that's one of the things, uh, Gabby, you may not even realize for it here, but 
And for those of you who are listening, the number one killer throughout all of human history for armies. Dysentery. Well, actually, yes, that's literally the number one killer overall. I mean, disease is the big killer. For actual deaths in the military, historically, disease accounts for well over like 80 or 90% of deaths. Like, it's really crazy. Gabby, you remember the term casualty? Yeah. Like, when you think of the word casualty, what does that mean? Someone who's, like, a victim of something. All right, but did they die? Yes. Okay. We think about that. We think about that. But casualty means rendered combat ineffective, actually. So when when someone is talking about, oh, this army of 100,000 men took 10,000 casualties, maybe only around 2,000 of those men died. The rest were wounded and unable to fight. Wait. So why do they use this to civilians and, like, you remember that crowd surge that killed a bunch of people at a concert and they were like, there were 80-something casualties. Well, they weren't actually 80-something. I don't remember the number, but. In military terms, it means rendered combat ineffective. Okay. In general terms, it means someone died. Okay, yeah, that's what I figured. So, like, in layman's terms. Yeah, in in layman's terms, that's what it is for it here. But that's one of the meanings for it here. So these guys now, they were in sight of Jerusalem, but with sickness and low supplies and exhaustion, they just, they couldn't do it. They, they, they literally couldn't. And so they were obliged to return to the safety of the coast. A truce was then negotiated with the Muslims, and uh, Richard, he was a great general, but he was not really a good politician. And so he proposed that Saladin should give the Holy Land to his nephew, Safadin, whom he suggested should then marry his sister, Joanna, like the former wife of the king of Sicily and Richard's sister. And this would form a peaceful alliance between the Christians and the Muslims. And Saladin was like, oh, okay, sure. Yeah. Because that like that that's a huge deal. That's like a I mean, that that. How do I even phrase this? That's that's almost unprecedented. It's insane just how big that was. But Joanna, she was pissed. She refused to contemplate marriage with a Muslim. She did not want to do this at all. And that resulted in this huge family dispute between them. Richard then made attempts to negotiate with Conrad of Montferrat, but Conrad distrusted him because he had supported Guy of Lusignan and refused anything to do with him. Following an election of nobles on in the kingdom in April, Conrad was unanimously voted as the king of Jerusalem, but before his coronation could take place, he was then murdered at <laughs> Tyre by two Hashashin, the, uh, the Muslim assassins. Conrad held his claim to the throne through his marriage to the heiress Isabella of Jerusalem, who just over a week later was married to Henry II of Champagne, the nephew of both Richard and Philip. So there were rumors then that Richard had been involved in Conrad's murder in order to give his relative the title. We don't know. We don't know. But that, that, that's kind of the thing. Guy of Lusignan then retired to Cyprus because remember how, um, remember how I told you that Richard became king of Cyprus, but he didn't want it, so he sold it to the Templars? Yeah. Yeah, the Templars had the same kind of difficulties that he had on Cyprus and they didn't want it anymore so they begged him to take it back. Did he take it back? So he took it back? No. And then he turned around and gave it to Guy. Okay. That works. Because Guy like Guy was king of Jerusalem 
when he didn't own Jerusalem. Is that he, they were just playing hot potato with like this? Yes, they literally. It was hot Cypress. Perfect. It was literally hot potato, but with Cypress. So Gaia Lusignan, who was king of Jerusalem, even though he no longer owned Jerusalem, was now the king of Cyprus. And it was his descendants that would go on to rule the island for the next 200 years. So it actually was quite effective in that regard. Richard then received very unsettling news from England as his younger brother, John, was in league with the French king, Philip Augustus. And they were apparently plotting against him to take the throne of England. And so he made a further approach to Jerusalem, but he, he realized that he couldn't take the city and now he had to go home. And so without control of that, he realized, like, if he didn't have any kind of support coming towards him, there's no way that he would have been able to hold the Holy Land for any length of time because he eventually he would have to just leave and go back to England in order to try and control things. So, heartened, Taladin then retook Jaffa. And on hearing the news, Richard just set sail for the city with 80 knights and 400 bowmen and around 2,000 Italian soldiers. He arrived at Jaffa on the 31st of July, and he charged into the city in a daring surprise attack. It caused the Muslims to completely panic and fled, and Saladin lost control of his troops. Like, that was like the last thing before they actually settled on their truce agreement. Which, in turn, was a three-year truce that was signed on the 2nd of September, 1192, and which... The Crusaders, they retained their conquests of the lands that they did actually take, and they gave the Christians access to Jerusalem. So essentially, they didn't own Jerusalem, but Christians were allowed to go to Jerusalem. It was like, um, it was in Muslim hands, but it was a free passage city where you could just go to for pilgrimage. It was a, it was a compromise, effectively. Richard the Lionheart then left for the Holy Land and sailed for England. The, cru uh, the Third Crusade was over having failed to achieve its primary goal. So, I mean, in the end, the Third Crusade was a failure. It succeeded in some things and had some pretty good moments. It, it, did, it did increase the level of, of like, control that the Christians had in, in the Holy Land, but not enough. Their, the ultimate goal, the whole reason, the primary driving factor of Jerusalem was a failure. They, they couldn't take it. And that is the end of the Third Crusade. Five more to go? Yeah, yeah, five more. Not to mention any number of possible ones, like if we actually do decide to do a podcast on Saladin. We should. When do we do that? <sighs> next week? We could do it for next week. I'm not sure. When Tell is you he the most relevant in the Crusade? Now. Okay, well then next week. You know, and, and for those of you who are listening, I ask, make sure to give us a review. Let us know what it is that you would like to see us cover, if there's any kind of topics or things that things that maybe you you want to learn about because not many people really cover it and you just you wanna you wanna learn about it. Because again, this is the history of everything. We want to talk about everything. As you can tell, he loves talking. Let him talk. Yes, I do. Especially since the fact that I'm pretty sure that I don't even know how long this one is, but I'm pretty sure this is about an hour and forty five minutes, maybe almost a two hour podcast at this point. Also, we got a a few messages on like DMs on Instagram telling us that they didn't love the music, the background music. Which I totally get that it takes me out of it, so we're gonna not, we're gonna take the music out of it, the background sounds. Yeah. But let us know if you guys would like some sort of ambient sounds in the background, or if you just like no sounds. Because I was thinking of like 
a slightly crackling fire. Like, you know, like we're sitting around a campfire or that kind of thing. But I, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. So if there is something that you all want to hear, I'm hoping that the sound quality, especially since we did this last one, is great. So I'm pretty sure even looking at this afterwards, it's going to be awesome. Either way, I appreciate each and every single one of you. And remember, if you want bonus episodes of the podcast, please do check me out on Patreon. A dollar a month will get you a minimum of four extra episodes per month. Thank you to everyone who is listening, and I will see you next time. My hopes. Bye. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Jumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Jumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.